I just have a freezer full of just, I still have like two pounds of A5 Wagyu in my freezer alongside just like every animal penis in the world. <laughs> uh, and it is such, I, I wish you guys could just come over and just like look in the freezer because it is a wild place in there. There's an ostrich egg. I don't even know if you can freeze a rye egg, but I had an extra one. Welcome to the catch-up. Introducing your hosts, Eli Aruth, editor-in-chief, and Jeffrey Kutnick, CEO, and apparently the only guy who takes this podcast seriously. Of the craziest, most bestest, news-breaking, food-porn-peddling, viral website on the dot-coms, It's crazy when your future is decided by an algorithm. Dude, this pizza is fucking crazy! There's not one person in this entire world that believes you. Alright, and welcome to the catch-up. So, do I have to say welcome to the pod to go? We're doing it? The sooner we finish this pod, the sooner we go to Burritos La Palma and we get some burritos. Okay. (laughs) Alright, I'm excited. This week we're joined... With Josh Sher, friend of ours, published author of the Culinary Brodown Cookbook. <laughs> I love this. That was definitely, bro, that was definitely the first time someone just blatantly laughed at their intro in the intro. You called me a published author. It makes me sound like I'm like Stephen King or like but Ayn Rand. Like, <laughs> okay, he wrote a fucking little comic book that had some words in it. Yeah, you're and- correct with the title. Please use it like Sir Published Author Josh Share. Please go ahead. <laughs> I almost don't want to tell the rest of the people if they don't already know who they, you are. They need to know. They, they need, need to know. know. Okay. He, and you can also see him right now as the food producer for Good Mythical Morning, which is an awesome show with YouTube stars, Rhett and Link. It's been on forever. Uh, I recently started watching it again. Josh, welcome to the pod, dude. Hey, thanks for having me on. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted I wanted it to be like a robust intro. It, no, the thing was it was a robust intro. The problem we're gonna have now for the next five minutes, the pre-interview was so good and so energetic that there was a high bar for what the actual pod start was going to be. And now we're just gonna have to live that it's not as good as the pre-interview. That's gonna be good. Yeah, I'm on a come down. I need to get all <laughs> riled up on Diet Mountain Dew. Like, let's get some energy flowing, you guys. So you've done a lot of crazy recipes in the past. You've done a ramen donut. I just think people should know your body of work going into what we're about to talk about. Well, it is important. It is important. It's important. As much as you just laughed at your body of work as a statement, your body of work is a ramen. Is the donut. reason you're on this podcast? <laughs> yeah. It's it's incredible. At, at times, it's incredulous. At times, it's going to be the thing that I crave most seeing online. Um, but it's also I think it's important for the listeners of this podcast to know that you've been doing it for a long time. I mean, we Food Beast and Culinary Brodown go back. And that's your online moniker, Culinary Brodown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I no longer own the rights to the URL. I think some uh, a, a dirty adult <laughs> Russian site actually bought it. Oh god, um, Brodown means so, something awful. But now I, yeah, it is my online moniker. <laughs> All my social media handles. Just please don't go to culinarybrodown.com anymore, as you will be rerouted to porn. As a lot of people sent me messages of. Um, I'm dead serious. That is a I real know, thing. I yeah, know, I, I I know you're serious. <laughs> I was not aware of that. I also that. had to buy culinarybrodown.net after that, <laughs> thinking that like that's just fine. And then I forgot to pay my GoDaddy.com thing, and so I just lost that too. 
So no more official online presence outside of social media. Yeah, you lost all your branding. Yeah, it's just done. It's just done. You don't need that URL anymore, Eli. That's you true, know, man. Two, two, 2018. Maybe social URLs. That's all you it. need are handles. handles. All you need are handles. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, we're gonna let's get geeky a little bit because that's like the three of us. That's we've always been geeky about shit. You made a ramen donut a while ago. And why why I think why I want to talk about this ramen donut is because it reminds me how many different seeming jobs you've had in food content, food media and all that shit. Like Mm. you've been a recipe creator. You've been a blogger. You've been a quote unquote journalist, which you I don't know. Like, (laughs) no, no, you can't quote unquote. You were a journalist. He's a staff writer for L.A. magazine. Staff Uh, writer for Take Part. Senior senior food writer. I'm going to like back Josh up on this. Don't quote unquote journalist. His wordsmithing is dope. He is a journalist. He just now also works for Rhett Link, which is mostly people know from a YouTube experience. People are already used to, like, our backgrounds. Jeff actually has some sort of J-School background. I do not. And as you can tell, because I just said some sort of J-School background, he has a J-School background. I was a film student. I studied film and acted like a filmmaker. And now I make food videos online. I studied political science with a course emphasis in counterterrorism and insurgency. That was my actual, like, degree that I was on track for. So you went to UCLA. Hold on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On track for what happened. Oh, so, well, I didn't, like, graduate per se, you know, but, like, what? It's a piece of paper that tells you what? You know how to do science to so, politics? Like, what does that even mean, So, Jeff? I know the, st- I know the story, but <laughs> I don't why know didn't you graduate? So, I didn't graduate because I had failed in intro to Spanish class. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I wish I was about to try and say what's funny in Spanish, and then I realized that I don't know how to say that <laughs> because I failed that class. And so it was a whole thing. I was freelance writing at the time. I'd like I was doing an internship, and I and just I feel like I'm making excuses to you, like you're my grandma right now. <laughs> and why don't we have a diploma? Uh, and uh, yeah, but no, I'd, I'd like gotten a full time job, and this is like my last thing I needed to graduate. And I just like I, I mean like one point six percentage point short. And I didn't even no. argue, like, can I please have, can I do extra credit? I was just like, ah, it makes sense. <laughs> so I get calls, like, every two weeks from, like, the UCLA readmission. Like, Bruin, it's like, Bruin, second start. It's like, hey, Josh, <laughs> you want to come back and, like, go to school? And I was like, piss off, nerd. <laughs> you don't think about school even in the least bit right now? No, not, not at all. I mean, at this point, I'm kind of... I mean, one, I'm waiting for it to be super woke to not require a college degree for anything because that, that's coming. It's super know? coming. Especially Wait. in media. Like, there's no reason that any of us should have degrees whatsoever. I'm sure you're all very proud. I'm sure your mothers are very proud. But, like, you know, there's there's no reason you should require a degree for something that is changing so fast. I don't know if you can speak to your J-School experience, but people talk about all the time of just teaching antiquated methods in J-School, not focusing on digital journalism uh, all this stuff, not preparing people for like the real world jobs and just the massive layoffs that are going to happen. Yeah. And I, cause I'm assuming where you learned the most was in an actual newsroom, right? Yeah. Because that's, and again, I mean, I'm, I'm a part of this newsroom in theory because of being with this publication. I mean, my role's not editorial based, but I'm around it so much. But, but yeah, not, I didn't, okay, I did le- technically learn how to craft a lead. And mm-hmm. a headline in school and headlining and leads are really important today. But the lead that I was creating in J school is not the internet headline mm-hmm. lead that I'm creating now. So 
there were aspects of it that I would say were really beneficial and I'm glad to have a foundation of, but was it a necessary component to be a part of this team? Mm. No, no, it wasn't. And I'm assuming that the people who work and intern for us and want to create stories just learn by doing it a lot more than they will in front of a whiteboard or now in front of a digital presentation, PowerPoint still, whatever it is. I mean, kids. (laughs) (laughs) A Snapchat series of... Dude, in the next five to ten years, I don't even know what school's going to look like. Like in craft-based careers where you're a writer, um, a journalist, a, a filmmaker. I mean, with the way that things like master class and like digital educations are going, whether you're cutting your teeth and not taking a digital class or actually taking a digital class. Do you want to learn how to make films from fucking Steven Spielberg in a master class or... Uh, Joe Schmo at Chapman University who's doing it and that's that's like a super like people might fucking mm-hmm. at me for that shit but uh, if you're a doctor obviously like go in there learn and, and do all that but I think fundamentally like education is going to look way different in like yeah. 5 to 10 years again I, I never took a I felt like all the storytelling I learned in school was like theory based mm-hmm. so it was like I'm watching all these films and just like learning how they did it but I didn't need to sit in a classroom to do that. The only thing that school gave to me was this like forcing me to sit down with it. Mm. But I, I had the wrong idea of like, damn, like I'm going to learn so much from school. I learned by like cutting my teeth right yeah. right after. It, it's funny the way that people frame college too. Because like obviously, I mean, even though I didn't study anything close to what I do now, obviously still use the tools of just like analyzing things, uh, how to write with a purpose, all this stuff. But it's not, did you learn anything from college? It's, did you learn like $120,000 worth of stuff? Mm. That's the big thing. A lot of people have been railing against the idea of unpaid internships recently, which is totally fair. I mean, obviously pay people who are doing labor, uh, but they always frame it in the sense of like, this is, um, you know, being uh, like, it, it doesn't give people who may come from underprivileged backgrounds, come from diverse backgrounds an opportunity because if you can't afford to work for free, you know, all this stuff. And I was like, wow, what a crazy idea to have like an expensive thing that is necessary for your success. Like, I don't know, college, you know? And so it's kind of crazy to me that people are framing unpaid internships in this way as being exclusive and not realizing that like, that's the entire university system. I mean, look at all the quote unquote top universities, which those lists do matter because they get in people's heads. Like so many of them are are private costing $60,000 a year. Like to me, that's the crazy exclusive thing. Especially in something that, like, a bachelor's degree doesn't guarantee you success or a high-paying job anymore whatsoever. I mean, and the idea of school weighing you down after through, like, the financial costs is oh, just yeah. insane. Like, all right, cool. You're already 60000 100000 $200,000 behind. Mm-hmm. Like, all these lawyers making out of school right now. Like I have a bunch of friends who are talking about their debt five to ten years out of law school and they like pursued that law school for the idea that like well shit i'm gonna make 100 g's a year like the average uh salary of those positions it might be 120 how many positions are being filled like that's Mm -hmm. like the big thing to look at for anyone listening we're like oh shit i'm pursuing this because the average salary is x amount how many of those jobs are actually available Mm -hmm. like that average salary is brought up by the few people that have those jobs super fucking nerdy after school speak but yeah maybe you don't have after school to speak of Right? 
I have, a, I have a question for you guys that's that's slightly related to this topic. How important is the written word to food media right now? And I think that relates to learning the craft of the written word, which, which typically, at least, I don't know, for the past millennia has been done in schools, but it may or may not be for the future. So I'm curious about personally and maybe also speaking for... Eli, maybe for Food Beast too, but how do you guys personally feel about the written word? Mainly because I know we're all involved in it mm-hmm. and we're all seeing it evolve in a way that, at least to me, and I'll start with mine, is I'm personally uncomfortable like with, with the media landscape in general because I feel like we produce some amazing pieces of content that aren't algorithm, al- <clears throat> algorithm friendly mm. and, and it just gets lost. And, and then we have to make this decision of do, how do we continue doing it if people aren't seeing it in the same ways that they used to see it? And, and so every day, I think it's, there's looming questions of how much do we continue to invest in, in the written word specifically? And I'm curious, especially, Josh, your take, because, I mean, why I respect your take so much, too, is... I mean, you've been a staff writer at a touted national magazine and seen the food media lens from that side. And then you've also, you know, your Instagram influencer, at least were, were at some point. Mm. And so you've kind of seen t- these two sides of the coin. So, yeah, I'm curious about your guys' thoughts. Yeah. I mean, one question that I've been asking myself recently, you know, uh, Jonathan Gold passed away uh, about like a month and a half ago. Uh, and to me, he's the most important food writer to ever live, especially in the local L.A. community. I mean, he did so much in kind of like democratizing, you know, it, it's tough to talk about him and not frame him as like the white savior, which is, you know, shitty. Um, but he really did kind of democratize the way that people view, write about, consume food in L.A., people willing to drive to neighborhoods they've never been to. Uh, to eat. I mean, Burritos La Palma is a good example. Uh, he was a huge proponent of them. Um along with a writer I worked with named Bill Esparza. I mean, he was the one who first got me to try it. But, you know, they're out in, like, El Monte, which is, like, deep San Gabriel Valley, you know? So it's not like I've been going to that place because it's right around the corner and I really love it. It's you got to make the trip. And Jonathan Gold is a guy who got people to do that. And someone in writing a kind of posthumous piece about him said, as important as the things that Jonathan Gold wrote about were the things that he experienced and didn't write about, which means, like, he would just wander around and he would just eat things, you know? But I'm wondering if the current media landscape can ever even create someone like that. Because, I mean, I started writing about food when I was still in college, right? Um, and every single thing I ate, there was a question of, can I turn this into a piece of content? You know, because one, you're trying to scrap for money. You know, you have student loans to pay back. Freelance writing doesn't pay anything anymore. I mean, I once spent 18 hours writing a piece that I got paid 100 pre-tax dollars for. That averages out, I mean, after tax, you're making like, three dollars an hour you know and that's just the kind of current landscape and it's a kind of gamble but you know jonathan gold is just able to kind of wander around and eat write one column a week and that was what a full-time media job used to look like la times used to have 1200 full-time people they're down to about 400 now and so there's this kind of thing where it's like do we even give young people in media any sort of chance to succeed or what does that success look like personally business aside Writing is so incredibly important because some of the best video personalities that I consume, like Eddie Wong, Anthony Bourdain, 
John Gold, Gustavo mm-hmm. from the OC Weekly and, and, and all his writings. They're incredible video personalities, but they didn't study to be in front of a video. They didn't go to any sort of film school. They were writers that were so thorough and, and just got in the grit of whatever they were passionate about. So even even on First We Feast, Sean Evans, like he, he was a writer first. Mm-hmm. He, now he hosts one of the most popular interview food shows on YouTube. So all those came writing first. And again, I, I think if you ask any of them, they probably had their early struggles with just writing like and, and scrapping by and budgeting for it. I still don't have an answer for that part. And that mm-hmm. brings in the business side is... Yeah, I think we're we're potentially in a in a worrisome place if we can't find ways to fund non quote unquote like content driven food. Where like if we like want to go pursue go writing about burritos La Palma before we knew that this is like this great burrito. But how how do you how do you position that in the main distribu- distribution point that we like all media has right now? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Like, mm. does that picture look any different? Does, how do you explain visually what a tortilla tastes like? That's the problem that we mm. have now on Instagram is like to explain that it looks or feels any different has to be red and fucking crusted in Cheetos. Yeah. Like that's yeah. how you stop someone. But like your pictures of burritos La Palma is not going to stop anyone in the feed. And I think that's the balance. Mm. But to answer the original question, I think it's so incredibly important that you are a good writer first. Um, cause everyone I ask that's like been succeeding in any sort of like visual currency right now that we have online. If you're a YouTube host, if you're, you, you were some sort of like writer, you, you, you either understood comedy in a way and you were able to tell a story differently and people can feel that authenticity. And that's why, like, I personally enjoy watching stuff like fresh off the boat and, and like Eddie Wong, all of Bourdain stuff is cause like he was so thorough in his writing. He was so mm-hmm. like. You're like, damn, this dude is eloquent. Like, I want to watch that. And that's why I think, like, old school TV jargon of people reading off a teleprompter is going to go by the wayside. Because, like, also, like, there is no current art form to that. And that's stuff that can be completely replaced through an algorithm, through text, through text on a screen, how now this does, insider food, food beast does to an extent. Um, So I think, but writing is incredibly important because it hones and finds personality. Yeah, and to bring the to bring the business side back into is we have to make decisions every day to continue to invest on the editorial side, even even when that doesn't translate to dollars. And I think that's just something. I mean, every publication is experiencing that, and we're just a very small microcosm of that. I mean, you just mentioned the twelve hundred to four hundred staffers of one of the most important newspapers in our history. And so, again, I don't think we're the only ones going through it, but we're also trying to keep pace with the level of innovation of of social products that keep our audiences alive in a different way. And it keeps us alive because brands want to participate with that audience. And so, yeah, it's I can't tell the magnitude of of how tough convincing people to read is now yeah yeah and and i think that's what's that's what pains really pains me like in my heart yeah in my soul is when i i don't have many conversations anymore 
and I've told you this, Eli, with people where I'm just like, hey, man, the conversation we had before this podcast, Josh, about the long form read in Esquire, like mm. I'm going to go read that now. Yeah. Right. There are a, a dozen people or less in my life that I have these conversations with now. And I'm on the older side of this organization, meaning that I think I'm probably having the most conversations of anyone in this organization related to that long form read or that book you read or anything like that. And that's something that I just, it just doesn't sit well with me. And, and then I think the feedback that I imagine getting is like, you're a chief executive of a publication. Like you're the one that can change it. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can change consumer behavior enough from, from thumb scrolling and video watching to give that motivation back. And I'm like, it really, really scares me. Like every day, it's like really scary <laughs> to me. Like, and I'm really stoked that we're experimenting with Instagram TV. And I'm like really stoked about the stuff that Food Beast is doing with like Snapchat Discover ads and things like that that are very innovative. But I don't know, man. Not to bring, but not I to think, be the downer on the podcast. But I wanted to talk about it with people that well, this <laughs> is the most understand. vulnerable I've ever seen. <laughs> my God! But there's uppers to it too. Like for me, I, I watch a lot of like munchies, and so like I watch. Mm. Uh, but th- that got me to read. I don't read munchies, but I read the authors behind the shows. Like I saw, I didn't read Eddie's book and then watch the show. I watched his show and was like what the fuck is this guy about? Okay, he kind of reminds me a little, uh, like, uh, just of me, of a normal, like, dude who who went through some stuff. Now I read his book, and I like that. Now now anything around that, like, there's things, there's ways to go back. I didn't read, I saw Bourdain on TV before I read his book. I don't give a shit. Like, (laughs) and and his, I was like, dude, I've never seen anyone write like this. And so, but again, he, he went to school to be a chef. I mean, he's he's a culinary trained chef. So, I think, I think we're going to find good stories but I just think the way they get told will continue to be written. I mean, the way that what gives me hope is stuff like podcasts, stuff, mm. stuff like uh, the world, as much as we felt it was speeding along in media and like everything got shorter, things are getting longer again. Yeah. People are going back to quality. I listen to fucking six hours of podcast sometimes mm. a day. Like it's, I can't, I can't take a shit or drive my car without a podcast. Yeah. Like, so I'm ingesting content that's longer, sometimes a little more artful. Um, so I think there's there's semblances and glimmers of just the the human way we consume content going backward a little bit in a positive way. I think yeah. there's some stuff there. Facebook going a little bit longer on their videos. Mm-hmm. YouTube, people wanting longer pieces of content. The Shane Dawson series, I don't know if anyone's watching that shit. He's like revolutionizing what's popping on YouTube right now and doing... And I think this is a good transition into like Netflix shows and YouTube Mm. shows because, okay, everyone's like on Netflix's dick right now, right? (laughs) Netflix can do no wrong. Netflix is like, they're always in the profit. They're not always in the profit, right? They have great content. They also are paying so damn much for all this content. How is that sustainable? Oh, these are things where I realize I don't know how money works at all. Like at all. Like when I mean, you guys like run a company. I mean, I, I've always just been a person who writes silly words for those companies. Uh, but everyone's like, SoundCloud lost ninety million dollars last year, and blah blah blah. And I was like, what? Why are they? 
are there are there people just all poor who work there? <laughs> like, how does this exist? How do you have companies just constantly in the black? And I know Netflix is like that. I know Spotify is like that. So I just do not understand how money works. Next question. <laughs> I mean, we can talk no, about no, no, how it no, works, no. but it's not that interesting. But what is interesting is the, the fundamental difference between how something like YouTube works, mm-hmm. uh, which is an open community of people that submit, what is it, something like hundreds of thousands of hours of content an hour, mm-hmm. like get uploaded to YouTube. And it's like democratized content where Netflix still has gatekeepers. There's still executives that are like, this is a good show. I'm going to fund your show. Here's like $5 million to produce your show. Mm-hmm. Where on YouTube, you have essentially the opposite where you have to put stuff out there and see if people like it. You have to work hard to get people to see it. Mm-hmm. And there's something fundamentally different about when Netflix might have a bunch of bombs in a row and then where YouTube can make money off a five second cat video if it wanted. Like the way we yeah. consume ads and just content on YouTube is like it's democratized. What sucks about the YouTube model is the same way like the freelance model kind of works uh, where you can't out the gate have a hundred million dollar show. Like I can't afford to create a hundred million dollar show, but like there's an off chance on Netflix I could. So the rough and tumble ideas that come out of YouTube generally can seem kind of similar because you only have enough budget to sit across from someone on a table on a set like hot ones. Like that's why I respect how they like started and built hot ones as a show. Yeah. It was complex. They could have got a little bit more money, but they realized like, it's YouTube. We have to start from the ground level too because we're not pummeling millions of dollars into the show out the mm-hmm. gate. Where do you guys think Netflix goes? Do you guys think like Netflix could fucking die? <laughs> and, and, I, and I think to layer that question too is, is Josh, you have an intimate experience with YouTube show development mm. and especially with the amount of food that's now hitting the Rhett and Link channel is... Mm. You know, I don't know if you were involved with the ideation of specific iterations of their show or different types of episodes, but I would love to hear more about like where you think YouTube is going based mm-hmm. on how you guys create content now and what you guys are seeing as successful now um, and what you're not necessarily not seeing as successful, but at least from a lay person who's watched you know, a dozen probably mythical mornings that either you're featured on or feature food in some level. I'm curious about what you think is, is the net step for YouTube. Yeah. I mean, what's funny is working for a YouTube show really reminds me of everything in digital journalism, especially like when I came into say like LA mag, right? We had hardly any resources devoted to digital. And so I kind of became our analytics guy. I was literally the first person in that newsroom to go on Google analytics and be like, this is how many people look at our website. Uh, but anyways, you kind of, when you're, YouTube is a direct monetization model, right? At least ish. Uh, you know, I don't really get into the finances of how we make money. I'm just glad they pay me to make silly foods. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's more or less direct monetization. You have a certain amount of subscribers, you get a certain amount of views, you get paid directly for that based on how many ads are served. Uh, whereas digital journalism is a little bit murkier, but when you're kind of tracking analytics constantly, you become kind of beholden to the algorithm of what works and what doesn't work. You know, like you guys were talking about, like, how do we incentivize ourselves to maybe make content that could be important but doesn't necessarily bring us money directly? And so you're also balancing, do we keep serving people the things that we know they like or do you try and diversify? And maybe 
the idea that's going to make you a huge hit hasn't been done yet. I mean, that's why people people use the term clickbait. I didn't realize how much they use it for YouTube as well, because I mean, that was a huge thing in journalism, especially when Facebook uh, disrupted their algorithm to get rid of clickbait titles. Uh, I remember going to VidCon for the first time where we had a booth with Rhett and Link and they were selling ironic t-shirts that said clickbait on it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, I'm right at home where people accuse everyone <laughs> of clickbait. Like it's a bad thing to just try and make money to keep giving you the content that you apparently love because you consume, but whatever, you know? Uh, yeah, so I mean, an interesting thing, like the fancy fast food series that we do, which is like my favorite thing I've ever done in my life ever because they basically are just like, make your absolute dream foods. You know, and it's really similar to what I was doing with Culinary Brodown, except now I have like a budget and a production team, which is really cool. Uh, but, you know. No, and for people who haven't seen the, those shows, like describe the show mm-hmm. and some of the creations, because the creations are fucking, yeah, so, they're fucking food <laughs> beast in nature and they're just awesome. It, yeah, so the first one he did was the the fancy Big Mac, which I took like, uh, the steaks were each just $100 each. It was purebred DNA tested American Wagyu ribeyes from Lone Mountain Wagyu. It's a farm out in New Mexico. Shout out to Jess Priles for hooking me up with them. Anyways, uh, I hand chopped it like a French steak tartare. <laughs> I don't want to grind that nice beef. I hand chopped it. And then I like formed them into burger patties, uh, got the best bakery in LA, lodge bread to custom make us seeded brioche buns, cut that Big Mac style. I made a special sauce with about 60 bucks worth of sea urchin. Uh, so I made like an uni special sauce. Uh, and it was just, just like totally wacky thing where you know we made this incredible and no one had ever done anything exactly like that before you know there are things that i'd done that were similar um you know bon appetit has their kind of like we'll make like a, f- a fancy artisanal gusher type of thing but no one had ever taken this like just big old price tag but also not cheat it by using a bunch of gold and all this stuff because you see all these clickbait videos gold of shit oh my two thousand dollar pizza or whatever uh and all this stuff but we did it by just using like the best possible products the funny thing about that is it it seems very in line with what Rhett and Link do and what they have been doing for a long time, and it totally is. But like from a production standpoint, it takes like a lot more money to produce that. It takes it takes, you know, a lot more time to shoot that. So if you're doing like, you know, they we do like the Willet series, we do these taste tests, and that's all, you know, shot at the desk. And so you guys know from a media standpoint, like you got your camera set up, you have your entire system, and you know what to do. But then this fancy fast food thing, they're like, hey, so, okay, what if we just wanted to, like, light this giant pan on fire and create a fire tornado, and then we're going to, like, wheel in this entire buffet steam table cart, and it takes a lot more, and so I'm really glad that they were, like, willing to kind of invest in this different setup and formula when, you know, I mean, frankly, they could make the same type of videos, uh, you know, and just getting the residual checks from YouTube, they could die happy and i'm really glad that they don't i really i want them to die happy eventually like later like a lot like i want red and link to be happy with beautiful grown children and grandchildren and die happy a long time Clickbait. josh share of red and link Maybe wants like, them to die wishes they're to happy <laughs> like as like 145 year old men with advances in medical science it's not absurd that red's tall and they die earlier but what i'm saying is like no i mean like i'm, I'm glad that they're <laughs> They're taking, you know, food has always been their bread and butter, and they're willing to up the ante on it to try and do more unique things, which I think, you know, is really admirable uh, and something that I enjoy a lot. What are the challenges? And, and like, do, do you, are ideas, like, just shot down? Are there, like, I'm curious, because, like, fucking $300, <laughs> like, you have a Crunchwrap Supreme that was, like, 250 bucks. Yeah. Like, are they ever, like... 
No. I mean, but- <laughs> there's only one time I've been given a hard no, and I should have hard no myself on it a lot earlier. It was when we were doing the fancy Chick-fil-A uh, thing, uh, and, you know, I ended up using some, like, really nice organic chickens from, like, pasture bird farms out in Corona. You know, they're a nice place. Anyways, like... It's always a challenge of like if we're trying to make it the most expensive possible, like you can get expensive beef. There's no expensive chicken or so I thought until (laughs) I found a $1,300 show chicken and you know where this is going. And I I go, this is like, I don't know why I did this. It was like we were filming an episode and I go up to like our showrunner and our VP and I was like, hey, um, just wanted to see if I could get approval on this. So I was wondering if I could just ship out this $1,300 show chicken from Malaysia. Um, I can get it slaughtered and fabricated from a butch. Like, I don't know what was wrong with me that day, but I was like 80% serious. And they were just like, um, I mean, aside from the money, the ethics of that, like if it was a chicken that wasn't meant to be eaten, like, was it a pet? What are you talking about? And I was like, Never mind. <laughs> so that was the only hard no. But again, I should have given myself that hard no. Uh, but most of the time, you know, I don't like go crazy. I'm not like shipping in entire, you know, cows and stuff. And uh, all this stuff, like, I just have a freezer full of just, I still have like two pounds of A5 Wagyu in my freezer alongside just like every animal penis in the world. Uh, and it is such, I, I wish you guys could just come over and just like look in the freezer because it is a wild place in there. There's an ostrich egg. I don't even know if you can freeze a rye egg, but I had an extra one. Like ostrich eggs, like the, the, the big one. Oh, those oh, are yeah. dinosaur eggs. But they're like for the what? McGriddle. Mm, yeah, um, we used ostrich egg for the, the fancy McGriddle. And uh, yeah, they just, the guy gave me two because he was late on his shipment. Uh, and so I just have a spare ostrich egg. Literally the other day I was digging through the, the freezer trying to, to find stuff for an episode. And I had to seriously ask the question, is this a snake or an animal penis? And to this day, I couldn't tell you. There were bones in it. So I'm guessing snake. Uh, and like most of the stuff I have labeled and clearly. So anyways, the... the oh what I'm saying is... Uh, John, can I ask you a question? Is this the perfect job for you? Oh, yeah. I was yeah, thinking about that a lot. Because I can't imagine something that combines like the prowess of... Okay, because when you need to... Just in what you mentioned earlier, when you're going to not grind the meat, but you're going to know how to be able to prep mm-hmm. that meat yourself. When I've been, you know, watching the McGriddle, for example, there's technique involved with flipping the egg and, mm. and doing very things. Like you, ha- it's not just the quality ingredients, right, Eli? It's it's the fact that. Someone has to be able to execute it at a high enough level that the ingredients like look great on camera and taste what they're supposed to taste like. So your combination, which is like your brand to this highbrow, lowbrow. Yeah. The fact that you know where to source. I mean, a show chicken, but that's besides <laughs> the point that you know where to source the best mm. ingredients and then still make it relatable to mm. a Big Mac. Like I just like. When you said you were doing stuff with Rhett and Link, and then I saw what you were doing, I was like, there isn't a, there isn't a better job for yeah. Josh. I like the eerie kind of authenticity of what makes it tick. Is like if on Good Mythical Morning, when you bring in these items, they're usually created too. Mm-hmm. Like you, and you're talking about like you could have made up that you chopped that wagyu beef yourself by hand, oh, right? Yeah. And yeah, then yeah. actually just did it in a grinder because yeah. like that would take that would be way fucking faster. Uh-huh. I think there's this like cute cool authenticity that you're actually going through these steps yeah and 
like there's cost in that there's all that stuff mm. that like wouldn't really fly elsewhere like dude yeah. come on like we're shooting youtube here like uh-huh. get this done make it up act like you did that stuff do you really have to get that show chicken yeah do you really have to chop this meat by hand into a tartare mm-hmm. like are you kidding me that's i think that's what's fun and authentic about it and i think that's what people are kind of drawn to right yeah. now. and i think that's something that people have been drawn to for Rhett and link for a long time and i think that's a big hallmark of youtube is when you're being served this content for free and the only thing that you're you're not even paying for a cable subscription you know you're literally just like watch an ad once every three videos or whatever and when you have that and when like you were talking about earlier so many youtube shows being very kind of diy it creates such an intimate connection where you have this like sense of trust with the people that you're watching and especially Rhett and Link, it's just like two best friends just like staring into a camera. They started in their garage, so it was all super relatable. And so like we're super good about being like really authentic with everything. We could fake having beaver testicles. We don't fake having beaver <laughs> testicles. We get beaver. I literally had to text my guy last night asking him which testicles he has in store. Little spoiler alert, there will be testicles on the show at some point. Um, but anyways, yeah, so like we, you know, we pay to have that authenticity and I think it's something that like it's a you know bond of trust with the viewers that like we really don't break what do you I mean I saw I follow you on Twitter it's like if you if you need to follow like a fire ass Twitter to follow definitely do Josh's at culinary bro down super fucking funny and I know that you and Jeff like have been talking about it too like what do you it sounds like you have some spicy takes on like BuzzFeed tasty like (laughs) because the, the level of of care you're giving to these wild Mm -hmm. things you're doing on youtube on good mythical morning seem pretty counterintuitive to what's going on on tasty and this and i and i think there's a lot of pro to tasty and we've talked about this in the past too and so i I don't think this is necessarily like a huge criticism of of buzzfeed tasty i think they've Mm. established a lot of really good stuff but i'm just curious what you think and where all that angst is coming from <laughs> i'm gonna throw out a name and see if you remember this alvin jew yeah Jao. fuck that guy you remember our buddy alvin yeah. i i have nothing but respect <laughs> for for buzzfeed tasty uh and what they've done and i know that digital media is such a, a weird space where ideas can be doubled and get copied and it's not always intentional and you're always trying to hit a moving target but alvin jew that dude was deliberately ripping i mean he was like blocking nick from dude foods on instagram because oh. he was like yo you just stole this idea from me And so it's one of those things where like tasty, they've, it's almost like an algorithm is writing recipes at this point, you know, it's one of those things where they've put out so much content that it's almost impossible to create anything new. And it's one of those things where like, it's almost to what end, you know, like, I mean, they've just amassed such a crazy Facebook audience, but now that Facebook is like essentially trying to go away from video, like where is Tasty going? And what's interesting is they've started doing longer form behind the scenes videos on YouTube. So it's like you created such a massive, massive empire and put out so, so, so much content for like a two year run of growth. And that's what's so wild about it to me. Well, that's the big difference between BuzzFeed Tasty and some of these other food platforms is that BuzzFeed created Tasty as a business test. Like it Mm -hmm. it wasn't created out of like one kid's passion at BuzzFeed was like, I just really like food. I think we should talk about food. It was their uh, president or CEO at the time was like, we we're going to go the distributed content route. So for that just means, hey, we're not like going to base our business on hosting stuff on Mm BuzzFeed.com. We don't have like a channel on TV. We're going to distribute everything to social. So 
what they realized through their tests was that food was the easiest way to distribute and connect with people. It's such a universal language. Like we could hit people in India the same way we hit people in the middle of the US because Mm -hmm. food is just a universal language. And so it's good to note that BuzzFeed Tasty was created as just a business experiment. And it was a really good business experiment. They've, I think it did really good wonders for food advertising that like puts food on all our tables. Like that they found a way to monetize recipes at scale in a really fun way. Now the con of it all is it's not very artful. It's no longer Mm. progressive on the art front or on the food front. I think they've progressed immensely and deserve a bunch of accolade on the business side, but it was a means to an end. Like, and and it wasn't BuzzFeed or Tasty that you should be upset about. Like, and that's the angst that I had with the person that Josh Mm. is talking about. was like, yeah, my first gut was like, man, fuck BuzzFeed. (laughs) Fuck Tasty, man. They're stealing, they're stealing recipes from people like Josh at the time, from people like Nick of Dude Foods, these guys that aren't necessarily making their main source of income, the food projects that they really want. Mm. And because a, in my head at the time, a big company like BuzzFeed was just ripping them off of ideas. No, it was the means to the end. They set up this framework to push forward as fast as possible and some bad seeds in the process. People that worked there were like, well, I have to meet a certain amount of content. Like, yeah. I'm just going to rip these fucking recipes. I'm just, mm. I'm just going to do it. It's fast. It's easy. Like, no one's ever going to catch me. That dude got caught. There was like a big, I don't know, like there should be a bigger discussion about that. Yeah. But that's like the pros and cons of Tasty too. Um, and they 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 definitely talk about how Tasty is like very algorithmically driven. Mm. It is. That's why it works so well. Um, but they're not the only cat in the game. I think there's yeah. like so yummy. There's like other pages that do it well, which shows like what BuzzFeed's doing isn't necessarily proprietary. Yeah. But it's definitely like not always as fun to watch as like, Good mythical morning. Yeah. We actually did a BuzzFeed Tasty parody uh, called It's So Weird uh, on social, which I was really stoked on because the first video that I worked on for that was called Goth Christmas Dinner. Because like the reason I created the ramen donut, right, was because the, the ramen burger and the cronut were the two biggest foods at the time. And I thought they were both like, you know, fun, but also like kind of dumb. Uh, and so I was like, let's make it dumber. Let's make a ramen donut. And then did that. And at the time that we made this goth Christmas dinner, it was like the charcoal soft serve was a big insider is uh, yeah. the other huge player in that game. Food yeah. insider. Yeah. They have a one a vertical just devoted to cheese, just yeah. called cheese insider. It's just cheese. Anyways, we did this video where we just like dyed an entire ham black, just boiled it in just charcoal water and did a squidding glaze and just played a bunch of metal in the video. And that felt really great uh, as like a little just like, you know, playful F you. Um, but no, one one thing that I think is uh interesting is like food networks president recently said our business is not to teach people how to cook our business is to get people to watch tv you know and that's really interesting to consider with food media is we're not creating food we're creating images of food Mm. you know and that's something i try to explain to a lot of people even on the show like if someone says uh make a pizza for camera you know versus if someone said make me a pizza for dinner if you're making someone a pizza for dinner you might think like oh they like olives and mushrooms on their pizza if you're making a pizza for camera it's got pepperonis on it because the stereotype of a pizza that you think of is pepperoni pizza if you know you put a dog on camera you want a golden retriever not some little weird yaffy breed because that's the most dog-like dog so it's this thing where you a lot of people criticize tasty because their recipes are watered down they're bad they don't work no one's cooking them 
No one is cooking the tasty right. recipes. Their job is not to get people to cook the recipes. Their job is to get people to watch the videos. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think they are, you know, maybe demystifying home cooking for a lot of people. They show the one pot chicken Alfredo whatever video uh, and people might make it. But the main thing is, you know, they're they're creating content. They're not creating recipes for people to make, which I don't know if it's necessarily a bad or a good thing, but it's just kind of a reality that I think thwarts a lot of the criticism of just like, these aren't good recipes for home cooks on a budget. It's like, so they don't care. You know, that's not the point. Well, it's a push. It's a push system where like they just put recipes out and they try to find Mm. you. You're like, you're for the most part, you're not like actively searching. You're not going to tasty to search. I think now that they've built up a big enough catalog, they Mm. do have that. That's like the big, like I use YouTube to like search, like how to poach an egg. Like that's like, I'm going out to find yeah. And and I think that's like Tasty essentially is a lot more like Food Network, like you're mentioning, where like Food Network is a lot of push. Like you're you're on TV, you're pushed you're pushing these recipes out. Mm. So that's that's curious where it's going. Yeah, well, I mean, the autoplay on Facebook is another mm. huge feature that like I talked about with YouTube having a very kind of intimate connection with people. I think Facebook has a very antagonistic connection with a lot of people because you're scrolling through your feed and you don't necessarily want the video of the one pot chicken alfredo broccoli dinner to start playing and it does so then you immediately feel like you need to go tell everybody they suck and they should kill themselves because that's how people on the internet seem to interact if they don't like a thing that you did um but yeah so that's another kind of weird thing where if people aren't searching for the content they're essentially you know being forced into watching it in a way and that creates an interesting dynamic what's the next steps for recipe contributors or social media influencers that do like to cook that don't have the scale or production to be seen in the same way that us at food beast or even bigger players like inside mm-hmm. our buzzfeed because i'm trying to think of the current ucla shot putter that wants a career <laughs> in food media and like how mm-hmm. how he would try to do what you're doing now yeah and i honestly don't know what the path is outside of of course you have an Instagram handle and you're creating content in some format and you're pro, you know, it might make more sense on YouTube, but what's your take Josh on where, where people have to start now versus where you started and how far is that from, Mm -hmm. from when you started? Yeah. I mean, I remember when I started creating recipes, like places like, uh, I mean, food beast, first we feast thrillist, like, there was this kind of fun little like war between like me, the vulgar chef, uh, Kyle, uh, Nick from Dude Foods, where we just like create the dumbest kind of recipes possible. You know, like the the ramen donut. Like Kyle invented the mac and Cheetos from Burger King. You know what yeah, I mean? You guys remember yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Anyways, it was this kind of fun time where you could like spend time creating a recipe, and then like you know that would build your platform and all this. But now through things like Tasty, through things like even Instagram, going to the algorithm model where it rewards homogeneity. Uh, And so someone recently hit me up like a year ago and they were like, hey, I want to be like you. How do I start? And I didn't answer him because I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a good person. (laughs) Uh, But anyways, I didn't answer them. And then uh, I I looked at their profile recently and they have like 130,000 Instagram followers. And meanwhile, I've like lost a thousand in the last year. Uh, And then I I look at what they're doing and it's it's all a facsimile of devour power of uh hungry hue it's a very daily food feed yeah yeah. he's he's kind of the king of it um like and and, i mean they're all sharing the same photos of the same chicken sandwich 
And I get it. It's like the hustle. And it's if you're kind of basing it off of what people are liking uh, and that's what's growing your following, then you got to do you. And especially now in a time where in L.A., like we don't have a single food critic in the entire city of L.A., you know, there are people calling for freelance pitches that, you know, you don't know if that pitch is ever going to get accepted. Can I tell someone to sit down and spend three hours crafting a pitch that might not be accepted, that they're going to have to wait hours to hear a return on? Uh, even if they do get it, it might be a hundred dollar check for a 18 hour reported story. Or do I be like, Hey, hustle your ass off on Instagram, play the algorithm, post that picture of the chicken sandwich or the flaming hot mac and cheese burrito being just ripped apart by bare hands. Uh, and then try and, you know, I don't know, uh, take sponsored content, uh, try and run PR for restaurants. Like I honestly don't know how I could tell somebody to get into food media right now. I mean, I think Tastemade was a big player in LA and I think even they're laying people off now. It's such a shifting industry. It's, I mean, I don't know what someone three years older than me would have told me to get into it. It's one of those things where you just kind of stumble forward and if it works out, it works out. Yeah. Uh, And if it doesn't, I don't know, wash dishes or something. I mean, yeah, that's, we, we have a, we have an intern program. And then when it's, when it's people that are, the advice is just like create, like, yeah. Like just create, like you don't, you don't have to, like if I wanted to be a food creator tomorrow and I'm 20, I'm in college, I would just create. Like, I know that mm. sounds easier said than done, but like you have a kitchen in some capacity, whether mm. it's in your dorm room or somewhere else, like you could create, you could do something, you could go, you could go take photos. Maybe you can innovate the way you do take photos of non flaming hot Cheetos yeah. things. But I think to not create would be a detriment. If that's like, no, what, you're right. you know what I mean? Like, and even if it's like, maybe you're not even sharing it with anyone yet. Mm. Maybe you're just like, I'm just picking a, a random recipe a week with an ingredient I've never heard of. Like yeah. that, like if you're into food or you think you might be into food. When I was in high uh, college, I wasn't really into food. Like mm. I, w- I had a fucking awful diet. Like one, like when you don't have a lot of money, it's hard to be inventive. And I don't think food was where it was. Maybe it was and I just wasn't in tune, but it. Like, I uh, forget when I was in college, like 20, 2008, 2009-ish time. Like, food wasn't as hot as it was. Like, I had TV, but I didn't watch Food Network. I was eating, like, Jack in the Box and Carl's Jr. And so, and my innovative dishes in the kitchen were just like, how do I, like, sustain? How do I cook something cheap? And I need protein, like, for gains. So, like, it wasn't <laughs> sexy at all, but... I got inspired by just creating. I was like, well, I'm going to write what I know. Mm-hmm. I'm going to write about Carl's Jr. My bo- hey, we have Sloppy Joes and Unlimited Eats at the Commons. Cool. I dare you to eat 13 Sloppy Joes. He, fu- My friend, fucking shout out Chris Doe, one of the <laughs> earlier Food Beast articles I ever wrote was just like taking advantage of your food commons at school. He ate 13 Sloppy Joes, spray <laughs> diarrhea f- out of his mouth on the walls, and we got kicked out of the commons for a couple months. Like, yeah, you know, those are like you deal with what you got, but it was yeah. creating, right? Like, yeah. I didn't have any money, and I was still creating. Like, we're in such a, a luxurious time as opposed mm-hmm. to a time where I was like, I don't need this to make money right now. Yeah. So I'm just going to write. I'm just going to take photos on this fucking razor flip phone and just create like you have the tools around you where like in our society right now more or less if you did want to create you could yeah no i was being way too cynical with my my previous answer the biggest thing for me is pick one thing that you know really well and know that better than anybody else i mean that's something that i've really tried to do like with this whole 
kind of high low dichotomy thing of like having the knowledge of those fancy foods here's how to incorporate it into garbage and i mean that (laughs) i threw out garbage way too casually i love i love that stuff i eat garbage i I, i'm open about that i'm a garbage person um but anyways yeah it's you know kind of becoming the authority of anything literally anything and like you said don't if you don't expect to make money on it you're never disappointed you're never struggling uh i mean it's only a recent phenomenon that like an artist as a full-time job is even a thing you look at so many novelists, so many painters, because I do consider ourselves uh, in that same echelon <laughs> with those people. I mean, no, they all had day jobs and they were all just writing to create. And so and I think there is a kind of inherent privilege in thinking of like, I should be able to write articles about cheeseburgers and make a living. You know what I mean? Right. And so I think if you kind of, I don't know, drop your expectations in a way um, and don't expect that you're going to get rich off of doing this or even be able to make a living you know keep it as a side hustle as a hobby i mean that's something that i'm really happy with right now is when i started writing about food it kind of ruined it for me because i was trying to find content everywhere and all this stuff and then you know last weekend just being able to skate down skate down to an armenian bakery and just eat pastries without asking like what region of the caucasus mountains are you from and like where is this sausage and how's and just being able to eat a fucking pastry without you know trying to turn it into my livelihood it was really freeing in a lot of ways. You had a different experience with food as livelihood when, uh, I mean, you published a cookbook. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who look at cookbooks as probably like an unattainable thing, mm-hmm. mainly because the cookbooks you hear about are high profile celebrity cookbooks of, you know, Bobby Flay's Fit or Chrissy Teigen's latest book. And then you don't necessarily hear about the indie author coming out with their first cookbook mm. to whatever levels of success. Cause if you hear about a book, it's going to be probably one of the two that I just mentioned yeah. this past year. Mm-hmm. So what was that process like and start from the beginning? Because from what I remember, I think you had a book agent or mm. you had a lit yeah. agent or you had something like that, but did you stumble in the same way that you did toward blogging and social media into the cookbook? And what was that process? And I think it's probably a somewhat of a lengthy process, but just tell me more about it because I would imagine there's a lot of people in our audience who's curious about mm. how that sausage is made cookbook wise um, because it's still relevant. The cookbook as a media platform, super relevant. Um, as long as you can have enough impact to make it relevant. Yeah. Because, and again, I'm old, but I still walk Barnes and Noble and look at cookbooks. Majority, I have no idea who's in there and what this is, but the content looks pretty cool. Mm. And so I'm. it's my personal assumption that 98% of books are probably by amazing people showcasing amazing food. I just know about the very small majority that have an ad budget that have uh, feature a person mm-hmm. with a million Instagram followers and it gets, and it gets in feeds. You yeah. Know? Is there an algorithm for books? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. You're just like, it's like a sundial. You just kind of put it on the ground. You throw the book on it and then it's just like, whichever way the shadow goes, you're like, that's where we're going. Uh, no, I think one of the important things, so many people are like, I'd like to write a cookbook one day. It's like, cool, what do you have to say? What do you cook? And they're like, oh, everything. <laughs> it's like, no. I mean, one of the reasons I did Culinary Bro Down, I kind of made it this very specific 
kind of branded thing. I mean, a lot of it was rooted in reality. I mean, it's not like I'm Tucker Max just like lying about everything that happened. I mean, these are all true, but I was kind of writing from like a bit of a caricature perspective is because I knew I needed to have that one sentence log line, if that makes sense. Like even in, in journalism, in YouTube, you kind of think title down, right? You think, what's the headline? What are people going to see? Are they going to click into it? You know, it's not necessarily like you are getting served the LA Times or someone's going to drop a cookbook off of your doorstep and you just got to read it. It's like, no, what could I do that no one else has done before and how could I do that? And so when I started the blog, uh, I really just had a literary agent reach out to me and just be like, hey, man, you're funny. If you ever want to take this seriously, like keep in contact. And I was like, okay. And then uh, like, you know, it just kind of kept growing my following and eventually he was like, hey, you should think about putting together a cookbook proposal, keep growing your brand. And so it was this really like long extended process uh, that my agent was a super big part of um, and just started gradually writing over the course of a year a cookbook proposal, which is about, I think, 10,000 words, sample recipes, um, you know, marketing plan, all this stuff. You have to do all that. Yeah. You have yeah, to create so a market plan for your book. Like that's. And that's, that's wild. And that's free. That's free labor. You're not getting paid for that, mm. which one of the things I loved about college is that it gave you the freedom to do stuff like that but it's not really freedom because you're just living in debt you know but honestly like i mean i had internships i played sports i did classes apparently sometimes um but you have so much free time with not a ton of obligations that i could just like write a cookbook proposal now i'm in a bunch of debt from college but you know that's whatever i got a cookbook so that's cool (laughs) but no so I, i had a lot of free time and so i was able to write that proposal um kept kind of growing my following and eventually a publisher just kind of reached out to me my editor morgan was just like hey do you want to write a cookbook have you thought about a proposal and i just like shot her the proposal i was like do you you want this and she was like yeah we want this and then my agent negotiated the rate and then there it was uh so it was kind of a very long drawn out process with several just like fast bursts in like one week spans like I had the proposal like three quarters finished and she was like, do you have one? I was like, yeah, it's all done and it's incredible. Uh, and then I just spent the next like 14 hours just like <laughs> <laughs> just slamming food words down. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a process that I kind of half stumbled into it, but at the same time I was trying to put myself in those positions the whole time. How many roles did you play with the book? Because I remember certain conversations where I think you were setting up your own shoots photos you were doing your own obviously all the writing obviously Mm. all the recipes you just mentioned a marketing plan so not to kill the dream for people (laughs) that have a cookbook but how many roles are you actually playing in a contemporary role as cookbook author yeah i mean so much of it is middlemanning like even you know i had a photographer and i had a whole photo team but they don't know how every you can only describe a recipe and how it looks so much so like i kind of had to be hands-on in there the whole time i had to you know have all of the the kind of b-rolly shots of me doing non-cooking things because you know there's all like bobby flay leaning against a car you know with like a knife and like why do you have a knife near a car bobby (laughs) you know we had to take all those photos of me going to a tailgate uh, and all this stuff and coordinating with the designer and getting the page proofs and all this you know it's not just sitting down writing the words and sending it off and it comes back a cookbook uh and one of the big things is you know keeping a full-time job during this whole experience was honestly super rough i mean that that whole process you were at la mag at the time i was at la magazine at the time um so i wrote the entire manuscript while i was at la mag and then i left uh to go freelance um sometime 
I don't know, after that was turned in and kind of in that intermittent period where I was doing a lot of the ancillary stuff and all that. Uh, but yeah, honestly, that whole process, like it, it really burnt me out of writing completely. I mean, there are certain stories right now that I like, I mean, I'm super, super happy with my full-time job. I mean, Rhett and Link is completely awesome, but obviously like yesterday craft, this is going to go down a weird rabbit hole. So stay with me. Craft. <laughs> uh, tweeted this thing uh, for a new campaign and it was like one of their marketing people sent out a note that was like every mother out there who can't breastfeed not breastfeeding is okay hashtag fed is best for the baby and all this stuff and I was like okay that's like it's like an anti not breastfeeding shaming tweet thing and very cool message uh why the hell is it coming from Kraft the Kraft Foods Twitter account like how are they using this to sling more mac and cheese and so I just started like going down this rabbit hole. Kraft merged with Heinz back in 2015. Heinz opened the biggest baby food factory in the world in China the year before. You know, they haven't tried to hit the American market yet. Like what angle are they, are they playing? And there's this instinct of just like, God, I, I want to interview people who know more about this than me. And I want to cover the business angle of food Twitter and where this is going uh, and then I thought about the actual work of like writing and I was just like, God, ugh, no, <laughs> for a hundred dollars. There could be a huge story out there. There could be the biggest story. They had tainted baby food in China in 2014 called for lead contamination. And they may be violating the World Health Organization's International Code of Breastfeeding Substitute Marketing passed in 1981 after an estimated 65,000 children in Africa died due to Nestle's poor marketing program. And I just like, don't give a shit. Like, I don't want like, nah, I can't, it's not worth me spending four hours to sit down and report and write. Cause I just got so burnt out by the writing process. Hey, what am I, and how much money am I going to get from this man? What 75 bucks for a blog post somewhere? Am I going to wait <laughs> three months for someone from a big newspaper to eventually say no? Like, no, I don't want to do that. I did put that tip in leads this morning and I literally just lifted your, your, your tweet URL <laughs> and I put it in our Slack channel. So our writers would be like, Yo, dig it. Oh, the craft thing? Yeah. Oh, nice. yeah. That's Was that like nine hours ago? Like you just put it yeah, up or yeah. something that like was, that? Yeah, that was yesterday. I should have been producing the show at work yeah. and I just wasn't. I was doing this. I just Can you give me like, a, like 20 bucks for like a consultant <laughs> fee or something? Just like buy me a burrito? We're going to figure this out. We're going to figure this out. Um, yeah, follow Culinary Brodown on Twitter because I'm telling you these fire leads are in. Anyways, what I'm saying is writing's really hard. <laughs> well, and... Was the cookbook fruitful? Was it fruitful for you? Was it fruitful for the company? And would you do another one? Because it sounds mm. like, to me, it sounds like, I don't know if I'd do another one because it took a lot of me. Mm. Uh, and so I'm assuming unless it's hugely successful, you might think about burning yourself out in that way yeah. again. But it would probably take, yeah, yeah. A, a financial incentive enough to do so. I mean, another thing is, I was 22, 23 when I started writing that, uh, which is to say I had no idea what the hell I was doing at all. Not that I completely do now, but there were so many bumpy roads on just figuring out like what to write. What do I have to say? Who am I as a person? Is this a parody cookbook? Is it a memoir? I'm 22. How could I write a memoir? All this type of stuff. And so going into another cookbook process for me would be a lot smoother. And it is something I really want to write. I did enjoy a lot of parts about it. I love sitting down to long kind of um, stream of consciousness writing projects, which is exactly what the book was. So I would absolutely do it again. And something being fruitful for a publisher, like I don't have the exact statistics, but like most cookbooks don't make money, right? They're basically out there 
taking shots in the dark, trying to find things that will go uh, viral IRL, as they say, the kids these days, as they go like, you know, uh, I mean, think about, I mean, Thug Kitchen already had a huge following on the internet, but their cookbook took off even more than their online presence ever could. And so a lot of publishers are really trying to find, you know, they have their lost leaders of just all these cookbooks from schmoes like me who I assume didn't make any money. They haven't sent me any like congrats emails, which is like, <laughs> congrats, your book made a lot of money. So I'm assuming it's bad news. Uh, no, we we're fine. Uh, anyways. Um, yeah, no, I, I would like to write another one, but this time around, I think the process would be a lot smoother. Uh, yeah. Especially being in just a much better place financially. I mean, this is the first time talking candidly about money. This is the first time I've had a job where I can like, actually pay all my bills just with a job which is wild to me not having to take side hustles not having to do anything and that is so freeing because not only was i working at la magazine writing the book i had a weekly column with maxim i was doing random sponsored content i was you know freelancing out bigger articles that la magazine you know wouldn't have had kind of room for i was doing like random chicken wing videos with you guys during the pumpkin spice latte chicken wings i rewatched that dude those are still fire dude we we create the, the ramen donut that you created we bought together a booth oh yeah like we, we basically had this like mini partnership where I we signed intellectual property documents you guys licensed i think you guys still own the rights to the ROM nut for what that's turned out for sure no, we were like selling the ramen donut yeah. at night markets. It was like a really fun process. But w- what I'm gathering, dude, how fucking crazy, how many stars have to align in food, content, and, and just any kind of content creator for you. At the, you're around the same age, like your early 30s for like all the crosshairs early to 30s. align. You're, you're younger what? than I am. Yeah. Okay, dog, relax. How do you? <laughs> I, I've been growing this mustache for literally two and a half weeks. And you probably said, Josh, what mustache? Exactly. Yeah, I didn't see the mustache. I wish I was 30 and had a full man's beard <laughs> as you. Beautiful. I've had this since I was 14, that so I'm good. Uh, what was I getting at? Stars aligning. Stars aligning. It's crazy. Like, mm. all that has to align, all the hard work you had to do. I mean, you had to work, th- like, essentially three jobs while you write your book like that was probably a big part of the writing burnout yes yeah, like, that was that was all of it. it was just the constant 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 hustle i remember there were times where i'd get home from work i'd work on the cookbook i would have my maxim column due at like 7 a.m uh, uh pacific time and i would like sleep from like 1 to 2 30 at night and then get up at 3 a.m go on the couch bang through this 800 word article in an hour and a half send it hope my editor could make sense of it and then like zonk out for another four hours and it was just this like crazy time where there's so much just unhealthy for your work-life balance thing but it was kind of instilled in me that like this is what you need to do to succeed in this industry which it kind of was you know and also like and i don't think it's kind of was like i think it's i think it's just as hard if not harder now and that's what i want to reiterate is the the dream and not to cut you off josh but like the dream of being like in food media and food writing or a food personality is fucking hard Mm -hmm. it's just hard and there's a luxury at the same time because i'm still rather way be in food media than like news media just because there's a whole nother set of issues that come there but yeah it's just it's glamorous on paper yeah you know, right? It's just like, oh, you work in food media? 
eat at restaurants all the time. <laughs> Technically, all those things are accurate. Yeah. They're for sure accurate. But creating content that people see, that people want to see, that you can monetize, that you can live off of is just... And it's crazy. And you have a brand. Like culinary bro down is what pierced the veil, right? Like if yeah. you were just Josh Share, no offense, you probably, like you, you wouldn't have gotten the chance. Culinary bro down is your clickbait. Yeah. Like that's what got us introduced to you. Mm-hmm. And then you peel back the layers like this motherfucker can write. This dude is funny, right? Like he's 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 artful. But... If it was just Josh Scherer who reached out to us or like had an Instagram, like I'm not following you for that. And I think, I mean, it's so funny to like whittle down and come full circle on our conversations of clickbait and media. Mm-hmm. Like as a person, if you're trying to get into something, like what is your brand? Yeah, like give me something to click on. I mean, Food Beast, I, I still don't really know how to pronounce your first name. Is it, is <laughs> it Ellie? Is it Eli? I don't Eli. know. I don't care. No, you're Food so- Beast guy. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? I mean, that was how I yeah. like, you know, kind of glommed onto you guys was that, you know, I saw Food Beast. I was like, oh, like Hype Beast, but for food. Uh, and yeah, and I was like, oh, I immediately understand what they're about. Uh, and it's something, yeah, you need that hook to get people in. So it's it's tough when you see people, they're like, spoon and fork, at spoon and fork foodie. Yeah. It's just like, no, like I, you eat almost all food with spoons and forks. Like, find something. That's not a real person, by the yeah. way, if you guys are trying to figure <laughs> out what it is. Wait, who are you talking about? But I mean, about? no, people who, you know, try and kind of create something generic. It's like, dude, pick a route and, and really run with it. Yeah. And believe in it, you know? Before we wrap up, do you consider yourself an Angelina? Are you from L.A.? No, I'm from, I'm Orange County native, man. Oh, you're yeah. from the O.C. Mission yeah. Viejo, right? Yeah, Mission Viejo. Okay. And then uh, moved up to Little Saigon in Fountain Valley. Later in high school, nice. and then uh, didn't didn't get to LA till I was uh, twenty. I asked that because I I assume between UCLA, LA Mag, and living there now, at the very, do you consider yourself an Angelino now? And wh- why I asked that is, anyway, I'm just gonna get to my real question, <laughs> yeah, which <laughs> is where should I be eating in Los Angeles? And if two or three places, and I'm gonna frame it because I I, I hate, first of all I hate this question when people ask me randomly. Yeah. And two, and then I definitely hate it when they don't give me any direction. So the direction I'm going to give you so I don't hate myself later <laughs> listening to the podcast, I'm looking for places that won't bang on Instagram at all. Like zero. Like the picture will look horrible. I uh-huh. won't be able to text it to anyone. It's just, but it's so delicious. I was on your Twitter feed. I know you were recently talking about your love for mushy foods, yeah. which is like, Really interesting because I have the same love for that type of texture, but you can't <laughs> post to Instagram with a mushy food. You know on how many dookie emojis level. you'll get in the comments? <laughs> yeah. Like, all right, dookie. So, so tell me of the things that, whether it's LA Mag, whether it's recently, whether it's whatever, just living in LA, give me a couple spots that I need to head up that's not for the gram. Oh, God, this is like my favorite question <laughs> I've ever been at. You should have asked me this like an hour ago, man. Why did it take so long? Uh, first one is a Southern Indian place called uh, Mayura that's in Culver City. Uh, it reps the, I believe it's a, a city called Kerala, and it's on what's called the Spice Coast. And so their spicing is unbelievable. Uh, they have this fish curry dish that is just beautifully silken and mushy. You'd love it, Jeff. Uh, but they serve it with these uh, fermented rice pancakes. that uh, They're called uthapam. And it's like nothing I've ever had in my entire life. It's like sourdough because it's fermented, but it also doesn't have that like glutinous wheat chew. So it's got this kind of, you've had like Vietnamese or like any sort of sticky rice kind of pastry dessert type of thing. Yeah. There's a lot in Vietnamese food. It's like that, but savory and fermented and like leavened somehow. And then you just scoop up the the like super impeccably spiced curry 
with this fermented rice pancake. And you kind of do that like bite into it and go and kind of like suck the juice. It's like a burrito's La Palma burrito. <laughs> right. Or you bite into it and you go and you just suck all the juices out of it. Uh, and that is one of my favorite dishes in the entire city. And they have a lot of other bangers too. They do a lunch buffet too, which is fantastic. <laughs> uh, another one, uh, man. Wait, se- before you go into the second one, what's that restaurant yeah, called again? And spell it real quick. I'm writing it down. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Mayura, M A Y U R A. Like I'm in a spelling bee. <laughs> Ding! <laughs> Fuck you, Jeff. I don't know how to spell it. Google it. <laughs> uh, another restaurant. Uh, Man, okay, so this is a super... I'm, I recently moved to the Valley, so in North Hollywood. That's what's with all the Armenian food pictures that I've been posting. Makes sense. Uh, which I do love. Um, but there isn't a ton of... LA's really segregated kind of by... They call them like ethnoburbs or whatever, where, you know, uh, one Chinatown isn't even the Chinese neighborhood. Like, you go to the San Gabriel Valley, you go to Alhambra, Monterey Park, uh, you know, all that. So you kind of have to go to certain areas to eat certain foods, you know? Um, but there are kind of like little understated communities like North Hollywood has a huge, uh, like Northern Thai population. And so there's like some dope Northern Thai food up there. Uh, but I found this, uh, Szechuan restaurant recently called uh, Chengdu house. And it's one of those places where they have a full normal Chinese menu of like, here's your orange chicken. Here's your shrimp with lobster sauce. Here's all this stuff. And then they'll come to you and be like, do you want to see a Szechuan menu? And then you're like, so you get the sense that they're getting just a ton of like lunching white people in the neighborhood who just want to come in and have their Mongolian beef or whatever with fried rice. Uh, and then you can tell they're actually serving like a Szechuanese population who are coming in being like, yo, give me the Mapo tofu. Uh, and so I went there recently and I was like, yeah, give me that Szechuan menu, dude. Uh, and had the Mapo tofu, which is, um, have you guys ever had like Szechuan peppercorn where it kind of numbs your tongue? So yeah. good. Dude, it it's, feels good. It makes oh it feel God. alive, yeah. man. It makes it feel alive, but the first time I had it, which was in Mission Chinese in San Francisco, mm. I did not know what was happening. You thought yeah. you were getting I, hot, like, I thought I thought I was I thought something was wrong, like with mm. me. Not necessarily because of the food, because the food was delicious, but I was just like feeling my face. <laughs> yeah. Like, like what's too happening? Much? I, yeah. And then I was like, oh, this makes sense yeah. now that I knew. But in the moment at first was like Sorry, I was looking around in yeah. the podcast room. But, like, was it just me? I was looking around in that restaurant trying to figure out, hey, Tim, my brother, are you feeling this too? Oh, okay, okay, so it's what we're eating. Both our jaws yeah. are numb. I like this. Yeah, and I just, God, that's all I want to eat is just, because you get the spicy from the chilies, and then you get this, like, numbing sensation, you know, that makes you feel like your mouth just ate a bunch of electrically charged pennies, but in a really pleasant way. Uh, and then mapo tofu, right? It's the big cubes of tofu in, like, a ground pork chili oil and peppercorn laden sauce and it's just just mushy spicy thing that takes like terrible photographs which is awesome because i'm really leaning into that these days <laughs> uh and so yeah Chengdu house in north hollywood super underrated restaurant that needs to get a lot more love uh my how, sp- how spicy is that tofu it's it's not killer i think so there's a lot of ethnic restaurants you go into ethnic quote unquote because that's the only word that somehow the entire food industry has been able to describe any restaurant that doesn't fit this like hamburger and omelet <laughs> narrative of what food is. You know what I mean? There's just no other shorthand. What do you call it? International restaurant? No, LA's majority minority city. Like right. what the hell are we going to call it? Anyways, if there's a place that serves spicy food and a white person walks into it and they ask you what spice level you want, there's a white person spice level that they give you. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah I don't yeah. know if you guys, yeah, as yeah. you know, how like white uh, Indian restaurateur assumes you are. But there is for sure like a a thing and like literally if you go to a Thai restaurant and you insist like 
I don't want one to five. Give me Thai spicy. They know what you mean. Like they're like, okay, you want to, you want the real shit. Uh, and so if I went there with a bunch of, you know, people from the Szechuan province, maybe they would have lit me up more. Um, but it was, it was pretty mild, but it was, I mean, it was really perfectly spiced, uh, and balanced and incredible. I hate that I have to do that now when I go into like a Szechuan restaurant where I'm just like, they, they look at me and they're like, they give me the number scale and I'm like, Fuck, yeah. what's the right way to go around saying like the six yeah, without yeah. saying like sounding like Blow me eager, up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> without, <laughs> without challenging them yeah, to like, destroy uh, your body. Yeah. Like I'm well, not Matt Stoney. Like I don't need like, yeah. I'm, I'm not here for the challenge. I just want like how, how it's going to yeah. be fucking spicy. Like yeah. that's all I want. Cause there's twofold. There's one, do you seem like a macho dick bag? Exactly. Just like, it makes yeah. me a man. My dad's <laughs> proud of me now. Uh, or on the other one, are you also in, implying that like, are you kind of like exotifying this culture of just like, you people are different than me. You eat very spicy food. I want to experience that, you know? Yeah. Um, but there's also the like, yo, just like, don't, you know, don't treat me like a just person who's going to complain on Yelp if my tongue hurts. Yeah. All that Which shit, I think is the big thing. That shit aside, like just Szechuan with like cold beer. Yeah. Like just that balance of like having your jaw feel a little numb mm-hmm. and then washing it back with like whatever cold beer is available. I'm not picky. And then it just, those are magical moments. Then you get your buzz on and yeah. then you keep over ordering and then mm-hmm. you just never stop. And it's this like beautiful black hole of a cycle. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. It's so amazing. Like you get trapped in it. It's, it's one beautiful. of those food ambiance moments that like you can't get a lot. Like it's like in, mm. in like Middle Eastern culture, like in Lebanon, like I love the idea of like having tabbouleh with auto. Like so auto, like the white aniseed alcohol and you're mm. it's just like, you get you're supposed to drink that and get a little buzz and then the flavors of the tabbouleh come alive after you've had like the the spi- the spice and the seed in in your mouth from the drink you just had and then it just becomes like that's how you start a meza that's how you start and I didn't have, know that actually it's so much fun i mean everyone's going to have their way but i remember in lebanon like i wouldn't be you don't drink that to get drunk. You yeah. drink it to start a meal. Then it's acceptable to get fucking hammered. <laughs> like it's cool. But yeah, there's that 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 ritual to it. Yeah, that yeah, I think really adds to a lot. And um, that's in a lot of cultures, I'm sure. But like those yeah. are the two that I'm like immediately thinking of. Just like oh, I would love to recreate that like tonight. Yeah, like like caviar and vodka is another. I never really understood Russian food until I went to Kachka in Portland, mm-hmm. uh, and they do this whole kind of it's called a zakuski menu, which is basically a bunch of like cold appetizers a lot of pickled fish a lot of preserved vegetables and you can add caviar to it too and they serve it with like flights of ice cold vodka and i never really understood caviar uh until i you know took one on a bellini and then it was this like salty oceanic brine kind of iodine sea urchin flavored blasting you in the face and then you hit just ice cold vodka and the brininess makes the vodka just taste like the cleanest, purest water. But the alcohol straight like cleanses your palate entirely because it just burns everything off. So after caviar, then vodka, you're back to a complete neutral. And it's this wild like taking an eraser and wiping the slate clean experience. And then, of course, you're getting rip shit off vodka as well. <laughs> so it's like really fun. Uh, but yeah, there's anytime you add that kind of ritual to food. And obviously it's something that's important if like cultures have been doing that for forever and everyone knows you're supposed to do that. It just, it makes it so much more special. Damn, I really want, I've never wanted caviar, like, yeah. in my life. Like, it's always, like, an added addition, f- fuck you, like, take yeah, a picture exactly, of this, yeah. as opposed to, like, I've never just had it true and honest like that. Yeah. 
I cut you off before you were going into number three, and I definitely want that number three recommendation. Okay, number three is my single favorite restaurant. I mean, Burritos La Palma will always have my heart. Uh, Connie Seafood will always have my heart. They have the best ceviche I've ever had in my life. Uh, Connie Seafood in Inglewood is really incredible. But my like recent obsession is uh, this Filipino steam table stew restaurant called Nane Gloria. They got a couple locations. There's one in Glendale, and there's one in North Hollywood. I can't decide which one I like more, but this is my like go-to, go-to lunch place. Uh, you just, for like $6.50, you just get a giant scoop of white rice, and there's probably 25 different stews that all look very different, and there's no labels, and like, I'm not trying to like, <laughs> I, I hate when a lot of people are like, oh, the dirtier the restaurant, the better it is, you know, like yeah. that's some like weird poverty porn type shit that's like really kind of messed up, um, but that said, there are no labels on anything, <laughs> and you do, and you do have to just like go up to the person working the counter and be like, "What's that one?" And she like kind of doesn't really care about you, you know. And she's just like, "It's just fish, dude. Just eat it." Uh, and it is kind of this really beautiful, like you don't have to be a foodie. Like it's just fish. Like the fish one is the fish. Eat, eat the fish. Like this isn't a place where people go to have like a new cultural experience and. Right about on Yelp. This is a place that like serves the community and where you go for lunch. So I've started not asking any questions whatsoever. Just and I'll pointing. just be like, give me that one. Give me that one. <laughs> and I've just been like, and then I'll literally Google the ingredients later and try and like reverse engineer what I just ate. Um, and then, yeah, it, like one, one just had uh, hot dogs, raisins and pork and tomatoes. And it was fucking delicious. You scoop that on the rice uh, and it was really incredible. I ate the most incredible pig's feet I've ever had. They were shaved thin across the bone. So like you're holding it by the bone and it almost looks like a fidget spinner with just gelatinous skin and meat around this little like bone in the middle that you kind of just go like num, 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 num. just chew it. Yeah, but it was incredibly tender, uh, braised in like sweet soy and vinegar. Uh, and again, like six dollars and fifty cents for like a two plate combo. This place is cheaper than Panda Express. Uh, and it's just really incredible. And one of those things where again, you can kind of turn off your brain because they won't explain they're like what are you going to know the tagalog word yeah. for this dish <laughs> you asshole like you're going to know what like ginatang versus like calderata is like no like get the fuck out of here eat the fish uh and so it, it is like it is my absolute favorite restaurant to go to right now um so much of what i do is kind of as like a fuck you to this foodie culture that i've kind of i don't know raised myself in in a way and kind of having this resentment of having to you know figure out what everything is and go eat the best, you know, oh, you don't go to this place for this dish, you go to this dish. Like, no, dude, I'm going to go to that place and eat their fucking duck soup because it's just a meal, you know? Like, it's just dinner. Um, It doesn't always have to be the best thing you've ever eaten. Sometimes you can accept that, like, a restaurant is there to serve a community that is not your foodie bullshit, and you can still really enjoy that food. Bars. I just Bars. dropped my pen like I was talking to it. <laughs> Bars. If the mic was handheld, I would have dropped that too. Less bars. We should have just... We'll cut that. Yeah, let's cut it. <laughs> Can we end it right at the end? There we go. Thank you guys for listening. Josh, thanks for coming on the pod, man. Yeah, please buy, uh, I don't know, Surge, the soda. That's my plug. <laughs> plug in Surge. I think it's back, right? It was back. I don't remember. Burger King if, bring back it, Surge? I, I think, think Burger was... King has Surge right now. Anyways, yeah, buy Surge. I should know that. <laughs> Number yeah. 62 and 63 top selling things on Amazon. Surge and the Culinary Brodown Cookbook. So uh, go pick up those two things. Thank you guys so much for listening. Josh, for, for hanging out. And uh, until next week, y'all.
Yeah. <laughs>